0: I appreciate what you meant by that. Let me say a word or two before I get started. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, to watch Hollis preach again. I really enjoy that. I, I'm glad they're televising it tonight. Maybe I'll sit down sometime and listen to my sermon through his hands. We've got a mutual friend named Lloyd Williams, who himself is deaf down in Houston. And uh, he can speak, can't hear too well, and he doesn't have this finger. And in front of somebody one time, he said uh, he was interpreting for me and he wore out that finger. And so he calls me the fa- fastest mouth in the West. And so Hollis has a very difficult job, and I really like to honor this man because, you know, the Bible says we are to praise and honor men that are like Hollis is, a great servant of God. And I appreciate what Dee's doing for us and what Brian did earlier. To me, the singing in any celebration is probably more important than anything else. Because it sets a tone that enables us to achieve the celebrating mood that we are to have when we come together. And I really do enjoy celebrating, don't you? That's why, although I don't necessarily understand why, you know, the applause came, I don't necessarily disagree that that's bad because that's American amen. You know, that's that's basically saying what the word amen says. I know that is true. I appreciate that. and I've held a lot of meetings in the last five years, averaging about two a month. And to be very frank, most of them were not as well attended as this one was. And so I want to honor you because of the fact that at a very difficult time when it would have been easier to be maybe with the children that were out of school... You came Friday night and Saturday and today, and and that's good because that means we are involved in this thing together. If it had just been one or two of us, we would have enjoyed it, but we've been able to celebrate more because the crowds have been, the attendance has been real good. and And I think sometimes we preachers forget to say thank you, and and I really do thank you for making my life very significant. and And the words of encouragement that you've spoken to me, I'll guarantee you will be with me for many weeks and days, days and weeks and months and even years to come. It's been a real genuine joy to be here. I feel at home. I feel comfortable. I feel like I can say anything that I need to say or want to say because you're my friend and I'm yours. And so we've tried to just open God's Word and exalt and exalt in His grace. And it is, a, it is an exalting thing. And it does exalt us even to see The wonderful, marvelous love that God has bestowed upon us. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. That we should be called children of God, and that's exactly what we are. Don't expect the world to understand that. They didn't understand Him. We have a hope they don't appreciate. We have a work they don't appreciate. We have a character they don't appreciate. But we're heirs together, the grace of God, and that brings to my text. Ephesians chapter 3. We want to look again at the strengthening power of God's grace. God's grace does save, and we all, ex- we all appreciate that. For the, by the grace of God have we been saved through faith. And it's not of ourselves, if the salvation is the gift of God. It's not of works, or we'd have something to boast about. We're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God afore that we should walk in them. What a joy that is. that's in the background of what Paul's about to say for chapter 3 verse 1 starts out for this reason and so you have to read chapter 2 to know his reason for what he's about to say and the reason is simple God in his grace has saved us and he's brought us into his kingdom and he's made us his family and he's given us his spirit and he dwells in us not only around us and among us and with us but he dwells in us that's his saving grace and And for that we will sing by the grace of God. And we are sustained by that. And and we are inspired by that. And we are instructed by that in the way that we are to live and the way that we are to be. The grace of God makes me a debtor. That's why I like that song and I don't even remember the title of it. It has in it the phrase, Oh to grace how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. And that's absolutely true. The love of Christ constrains me. I thus judge, one died for all, and and therefore all died. And so there is no way that anything other than the marvelous love of God and the beautiful grace of God is the reason why we're going on. But more than that, it's the power by which we go on. As we saw in this morning's lesson, the power that is within us is the very resurrection power. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now, it doesn't do the same thing in us, but it can do the same thing in us, if you'll understand what I'm trying to say. The details of the function of that power in me is different than the function it is even within you or it was within the apostles or within Jesus. But that same power is my power. And there never will be, therefore, a challenge presented me too difficult for me because it's not my job anyway. To have the power to do it. My job is to have the faith to do it. And God's job is to supply the power because it will be unto me according to my faith every single time. It will be according to what I trust and what I believe. We saw that that resurrection power would enable us to know God better. That would enable us to know ourselves better that we would know our calling and our value and our power because we had this power to do that. In chapter 3, he continues, Paul does, this thought of the strengthening grace of God. And in the first 13 or so verses, he talks about what I like to call serving power. He talks about I am given the power to be the servant in the place that God has given me. He says, for this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, and he doesn't even finish that sentence. He says, surely. I don't know what he was going to say. I wish I did. It would have been interesting. Maybe he's going to initially thrust into what he does in the last part of chapter 3 and continue his prayer for them. But he starts out simply saying, I'm a prisoner of Jesus, and for this reason, and he doesn't even finish his sentence. That helps me when I don't finish sentences. If by inspiration you don't have to finish a sentence when you get excited, then without inspiration maybe you don't have to finish a sentence when you get excited. He has some exciting things to say so he just starts a sentence and leaves it dangling and he says, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as, I, as you will be able to understand my insight and in the mystery of Christ when you read these things, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been made known by the Holy Spirit to God's apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together, in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone my administration of this mystery, which for ages hath hath been kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through him or through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. I see two things in those 13 verses. I see God's plan and God's purpose. God's plan, I'm using that word. I know they approximately mean the same thing. But I'm talking about God's general plan and God's specific purpose. God's general plan is that the Gentiles will be heirs together with Israel, members together with Israel, and sharers together with Israel. God's general plan is we be together. God's general plan is that we be one another related, that there be no people superior to other people but that we understand that we're all together in this thing, that we're all brothers, that the ground, as one brother likes to put it, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There, are no, there is no rank among slaves, and that's what he's driving to, and that is slave power in verse 7. And it's God's plan that you and I understand that we are not elite. We're only elect, and there is a big difference. All of us are elect in Christ, and therefore there are no elite ones. There are no super saints and meager saints. There there is no one to ten. Everybody's a ten. And everybody's a zero, depending on how you look at it. If you look at it from our own abilities and our own achievements and our own... Uh, things we acquire we're a zero if you look at it from the benefit and the bestowal of god's grace we're all a 10 so in this world we're a zero but in god's economy we're a 10 and he always knows right the world never has known right it follows its father the devil who was a liar from the beginning and would deceive us into believing that we're nothing and so paul starts out saying i want us to understand that god's plan is one of equality That we be heirs together. That speaks of the national promise of the kingdom. That we be members together. That speaks of the body in which we've all joined our faith and our work. And that we might be sharers together. That speaks of the promise that God gave Abraham. And what was the promise God gave Abraham? Do you remember? That in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And what is the blessing that God has given to all the nations of the earth? Well, you can find it in a lot of places. Look in the book of Galatians. And you'll find that the promise is salvation in Christ. And so God's going to bless all the nations of the earth by a saving message that says we are together. That we're heirs together and members together and sharers together. And so I am obligated by receiving God's grace to share it. Because we are sharing together the gospel of God's grace, we're obligated to share it with others. If we are members together and heirs together and sharers together, then we understand God's general plan for us. That's the general plan. But now then Paul puts the spotlight of God's purpose on him personally. And he says, here is my place in that kingdom. Here is my work in this work of God that he is trying to fulfill. He says, by the gift of God's grace given me, I have become, and by his power, I have become a servant of Jesus. You know, I read that passage for a good long while until a number of years ago it dawned on me that it probably takes more power to become a slave than it does anything. Especially for Americans and their pride of their, of American style of freedom. We don't like to be told what to do, do we, David? I mean, we just don't like to be told what to do. I don't like for somebody to come and say, here's what you're supposed to do. I get my hackles up sometimes, and I say, you understand, I'm an American. I'm free, and I'm 21. I'll do what I want to do. And to become a slave with that much pride might take more power from God than anything I'm going to become. And Paul would saw that way too, wouldn't he? If you read First Corinthians, I mean uh, Romans chapter seven and and Philippians chapter three and other places where he talks about the way that he was in the past. He was an A-type personality, wound up and running tight. I mean, he was, he was fulfilling what he had considered to be and what he considered to be the most important thing in all the world, and that's to stamp out Christianity. And if I've read his life correctly, he was a free man. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it seems like he's ringing that bell again for about 12 and a half verses. It sounds like he's saying, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. But after he said all of that he says however I don't use any of these rights. And although I am free and belong to no man I make myself every man's slave. In order to win as many as possible. And just reading that as it sits in 1 Corinthians or taking it out and looking at it. We might think the man is boasting. We might even think that he's saying I made myself a slave. But this scripture balances that doesn't it? That's not an appeal for us by brute strength and awkwardness and resolution to determine we're going to serve others. That is really a cry to surrender, to yield, to give in, to give up, to give over, to give out in order that we might be infilled. If we hold to God a cup that has any degree of self in it, God can only frown. Because he's not able to fill that cup, because we've not accepted the grace that makes us less than least of all the saints. Paul wasn't lying when he said that. Because if you get to be less than least of all the saints, what position do you hold in the kingdom? The man that's last is what in the kingdom? He's first. And so Paul had really, by God's power, become that. He wasn't that initially. But by the power of God and the grace of God, he had become less than least of all the saints in his own estimation. Not mine. How about yours? I mean, that man is not, and that's maybe our fault, brother. Because we still, I still sometimes have a difficulty in believing that's the number one position. How about you, Clint? Sometimes I have difficulty really believing that the number one position is the less position, the least position. That if God's power and God's grace can knock all the props out from under my pride and make me know that I'm less than least of all the saints, then finally I have serving grace. Finally I have the ability given me by God to wash feet, to touch the lepers, to hug the prostitutes, to feel good toward the tax collectors and to heal the paralytic and to be known as the friend of the publicans and the prostitutes and the sinners and the perverts of Israel, then maybe I won't feel lessened by their fellowship. And I won't feel brought down by their company. And the church of Jesus Christ can regain the reputation it needs. And that is of being a friend of the publicans and the sinners. And so God's purpose becomes a specific thing. As Paul says, I have received this grace by God's power. It wasn't because of his inspiration or his perspiration. It was because of God's power. It was because it was the grace of God and the gift of God being worked out in his life because he basically has surrendered. So God is able to work his power in his life. Now what's the benefit of all that? Well, I'm skipping a lot here in chapter 3 because it doesn't deal with my lesson. Paul said he was a servant. Paul went on to say he was a preacher. Paul went on to say he was a teacher. All of that was his place in the kingdom. He was a servant. He preached the gospel. He made plain God's will. That's what a teacher does. A teacher makes plain. So Paul says, here's my place. I'm a servant. I'm a preacher. I'm a make plainer. I'm a maker plain, however you want to look at that. I'm a fellow who makes it plain. I'm not trying to impress. I'm trying to just simply press upon you the truth of God. Then he says God's intent is wider even than my purpose. He says God's intent is that people like me doing that will make it known to principalities and powers the eternal purpose of God. He said, if I am a servant and I'm preaching and I'm teaching, what are the angels learning? They're learning the eternal purpose of God because that's God's purpose, that prosecutors become proclaimers and prostitutes become people that present the Lord Jesus Christ and publicans become apostles and and wild-eyed fanatic zealots become people that spread the love of God even among the people that they hated, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That the purpose of God is seen by angels as they look at the changed lives of individuals. And how do those lives change? By the marvelous grace of God. And I'm saved that my life might be changed. And I'm taught that my life might be changed. And I'm inspired that my life might be changed. And I'm empowered that my life might be changed. I don't preach the gospel of the changed life, but I do preach the gospel that changes lives. If the gospel has not changed your life, you didn't receive the gospel. You might have received truth, but you didn't receive the good news. You didn't receive the gospel. Because if you received the gospel that Jesus died for you, and when you died for him, you were snatched from the prison to the palace, There is no way that your life can remain the same. What's the benefit of all that? I can approach God now. He says if you believe that, down in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 3. He says if you believe that you're in Jesus and you have faith in Jesus, then you may approach God with freedom and with confidence and without being discouraged. You know, I really believe that that would change our lives and change the output of our lives as well as our lives if we really could approach God with freedom and with confidence. I mentioned in an earlier sermon about a friend of mine and I that were praying uh, just this past week. And, you know, he prayed in a way that I just couldn't respond to good. You know, he called God everything God was except Father. As he started his prayer, and I could tell by that he didn't have a good relationship to God. And I love the man. I'm, I'm really not being critical of him. And then he, he got into his prayer and he said, Father, look down upon Richard and I. We're only worms in your sight. And I just had, it came out. I said, Not me. I mean, out loud. I didn't even realize I'd said it until he stopped praying. I lifted my eyes and, and, you know, he'd stop. I said, Not me. I am not a worm. I'm son of God. God made all the worms he wanted in Genesis 1. And they've reproduced ever since then. I am, and you are, right? Aren't you laughing because you agree with me? We are children of God. We are not worms. And since that's so, we say, Father, with all the confidence, we're going to be heard. And all the freedom of a son. All the courage that a son would have. Somebody within you being flippant. Oh, you're dead wrong. I never was flippant with my physical father. I'm not about to be flippant with my spiritual father. He's still my father, worthy of reverence. But he is my father. I do not pray to the creator of the universe. I do not pray to the judge of all mankind. I do not pray to the august one. I pray to my father who happens to be the creator of the universe and the supreme judge of all and the august one. He is those things. But when I pray, He is not those things. He's Father. Isn't that what Jesus said to say? Our Father, which art in heaven. That's what I call empowering grace, partner. I mean, that empowers me. And not just inspires me, it does that. It turns me on. But it does empower me. It gives me a sense and a feeling of power I don't have any other time. I never feel more powerful than when I just got through praying and put all my burden on God and said, God, you have to take care of that. I can't. I'm going to bed and going to sleep. I never feel more powerful. And you know, nine times out of ten, when I wake up in the morning, the problem's gone. Or I wake up in the morning with the power to handle it. Or it doesn't matter, it's still there. I mean, one of the three things occur any time I lay my burden on the one that can bear it. What What are you and I doing trying to carry that burden? We don't have the ability to carry it. We need to understand our specific place in the purpose of God is to be whatever we can be of the three things Paul said he was. At least we can be a servant. Many of us can be preachers, and nearly everybody can make it plain. And the result of that is we'll be able to approach God with freedom and confidence and courage. But now begins Paul's prayer. We had God's plan in verses 1 to 6, where heirs together, members together, sharers together. We had God's purpose in 7 to 13, Paul's place, God's intent, our benefit. Now here comes Paul's prayer, and this is the heart of my lesson. I don't like to preach anything out of its context, all right? So I want to see the context of this prayer. And again, let me state this. It's interesting to me that nearly every time power is being spoken of, prayer is the reason. Intercessory prayer. Tr- check that out. There's exceptions. There are times when power is mentioned and prayer isn't. But the overwhelming majority of the time that we are told we can have power, it is an answer to somebody else's prayer. So maybe we ought to be praying for each other more, you reckon? You think maybe because we know God's plan generally and God's purpose for us specifically that it would be good for us to be praying for one another that we'd be able to fulfill God's plan generally and God's purpose specifically in our lives. And so Paul says, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, for this reason, notice that, for this reason, Because I know of the plan and the purpose of God. What was the reason he prayed over here in chapter 1 when he said in verse 15, For this reason, it was the plan and the purpose of God. Now here, what's the purpose, what's the reason in chapter 3, 1 when he says, For this reason, it's the plan and the purpose of God. Because I am a part and you are a part of an eternal purpose, we need to kneel before the Father. Because we are the eternal purposed ones of God. We need to kneel before the Father. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray. Here's the specifics of his prayer. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's a bunch of prepositions, isn't it? Did you notice the prepositions on, and that are involved in those two verses? What is the source? Well, first of all, what is he praying for? That I might have strength with power. That's like having black with ebony. Or having white with eggshell. Or having hot with Lubbock in August. Or hot with Thailand in April. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's repeating itself. To be strengthened with power, is to be twice strong, double strong. So Paul is praying for them to be double strong. Now what is the source of that double strong? He says, out of God's glorious riches, you may be strengthened with power. Out of God's glorious riches. What's the reservoir of my power? Is it the combined power of this congregation? Well, in a way it is. If you close your eyes and look at the real congregation... If you'll have the eyes of your heart enlightened, it's the power in one individual in this congregation. Because I am strengthened out of God's marvelous reservoir of His own strength. God is infinite, omnipotent. And that's the source out of which I'm strengthened. I am not strengthened out of my faith. My faith is the reason I'm strengthened. I'm not strengthened out of my hope. My hope is the reason I'm strengthened. I'm not strengthened out of my love. That's the reason I'm strengthened. Because I believe in God, because I hope in heaven, because I love God, my brethren, and my neighbors, I am strengthened. But I am strengthened out of the resource of God's mighty power. Almighty power. And if there is an adjective that will be better than almighty, just add it there. Infinite, unlimited, eternal. I'm going to run out. And I'll still be trying to describe the source of our power. Isn't that good news? Every now and then I think we ought to vote on Scripture. Don't you? You know, sometimes we get so busy preaching and listening, we forget to vote. I vote. That's good. I mean, that's good news. That I am not dependent upon me or you or all of us combined for my power source. I am dependent upon God. Then he says, I want you to be strengthened with power out of God's marvelous sources through His Spirit. Not only is the source in God, the agency is in God. Out of God's glorious riches, I am strengthened with power through His Spirit. Somebody, how does the Spirit empower us? I don't know. I don't even know how God out of His glorious riches gives us power. I just know He does. You know, the older I get, the less I know about that kind of stuff. I used to have all that figured out. So if you get some old tapes, I'll probably tell you how. You know, if you go back and get some tapes back when I was 28, 30, 32, not yet dry behind the ears, I'll give you the answer to all those questions. But the older I get, the less I know about how God does what he does and the more I know what God does. And that's more important. If I know God's going to do it and I know my part is to trust in him and to walk in his light and I'm trusting him and walking in his light, I can trust him to do what he said he would do even though i don't understand it i'm so g- i'm so glad that the power doesn't depend upon my understanding but that my understanding depends on the power we're going to get that in just a minute he's going to tell us in just a minute that our understanding depends on that power and not our that power upon our understanding i will be strengthened by god if i love god and i'm called according to his purpose though i may not even know it and i'm sure aren't you sure That there's a lot of things that happen in your life that are caused by God that you don't even realize. And that God keeps things from happening, that keeps you from harm. If you trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding, if in all your ways you acknowledge God, what will He do? He will direct thy steps. I don't understand that. But I'm so glad it's true. I'm so glad that I trust God and I love Him and I've been called according to His purpose. And I'm speaking for you, all right? did not know what the preacher's supposed to do? Abe's nodding his head. He's going down that road with me. I mean, we are doing that together. We're members together and heirs together and sharers together. And because of that, we're strengthened together out of God's marvelous resources by God's powerful Spirit in your inner being. That's the location of the strength. In your inner man. You know, young men like to boast of physical strength, and that's all right. You'll get old too. (laughs) And then you can begin to boast and glory in the real strength. Though the outward man is decaying, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Aren't those passages great? Especially great when you get to be 48 going on 49 and your hair's falling out. You know, some people's hair turns white. That's because it goes, goes down and finds something in the brain, so it stays in it and turns white. If it goes down and finds nothing in the brain, it just falls out. And so I would explain Gary and I, wouldn't it? And so we need to understand that it's more significant the longer we live that we be strengthened with power through our spirit, in the inward, through His spirit in the inward man. What would be the result of that strength? It comes out of God's resources, it's through God's spirit, it's with great power. It's in my inner man. And what's the outcome? What's the result of all that powering? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. God had a purpose other than my strength. He gave me strength. He gave me great strength. He gave me great strength in my inward being. But that wasn't his purpose. That wasn't his aim. That's what he did to reach a goal. And what goal did he want to reach? That Christ would come to take his place of permanent abode in me through faith. That's what it means to dwell. Jesus doesn't want to visit you. He doesn't want to visit you. He doesn't want you to let him in your heart every now and then. He wants to take you over. He wants to be the resident in your house. He wants to be the owner of your house. He wants to be responsible for keeping it in repair and keeping it clean. Isn't that what an owner is responsible to do? And that's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to dwell in your life. He wants to dwell in my life so that it can be kept in repair and kept clean every day and all day long, as many days as we live. I think that's gospel. I think that's good news. I think that's a reason to go on when everything says quit. And I think that's a reason to win. I believe that's power, don't you? I believe as long as Jesus dwells in me, he's proven in his life and his death and his resurrection and he's proving every day from his throne of intercession that nothing in all of earth or hell can defeat him. And if he dwells in me, if he has his place of living and abode, if his address is Richard Rogers, then there's absolutely no power on earth or hell that can defeat me. Because... I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. Christ lives in me. But, sister, those words are not just written for Paul. Not even written for Paul. Paul wrote those for us that we might know the power of God. Then he has another prayer. He not only wants us to be strong that's one power spirit power but he wants us to have love power, too. There in the latter part of 17, he says, And I pray. That you being rooted and established in love may have power. Together. There's our word again. Together with all the saints. This is a together power. If you're rooted and established in love and I'm rooted and established in love, what are we going to have together? We're going to have power. Together. And power together is better than power alone, isn't it? Is, is it good for man to be alone? That's one of the first things my father said, wasn't it? It's not good for man to be alone. And Solomon, one of his wise sons, woke up to that one day, inspired by the Spirit, and wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's just still not good for men to be alone because if one man goes out alone, he doesn't get any reward for his labor. And if one, one lay down alone, how would it get warm? But if two lay down together, they find warmth. And if two go out together, they find great success in their labor. And a threefold card is not quickly broken. Where'd the third one come from? I don't think he's saying two have the power of three. If you do, peace. We'll fellowship each other in spite of that difference of opinion. But I don't think he's saying two will have the power of three. I think he's saying the two become three. Not the two become one, but the two become three. You remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were walking around the fire furnace? Here are some Babylonians, fell down dead, trying to put them in there. And the Babylonians looked through the open door. Nobody closed the door because the guys that put them in there died getting them in there. And they looked inside the open door and said, I thought we put three in there. They said, we did. said, so, how come there's four in there? There's four in there for the same reason. There's three when two have strength together. The third one's God. You see, when you're rooted and established in love, and I'm rooted and established in love, we have power. Why? God can join us in that activity because we are together in this activity. And so let's be rooted and established in love. Let's don't just sing about it and preach about it and talk about it. Let's make it our root. Let's make the root of our life love, even if it has to be tough love as we rebuke one another. Even if it has to be spurring love, hurting love as we spur one another on, provoke one another unto love and good works. It will still be the love that says, I am deeply involved in your life and I want to be more deeply involved in your life. We need to get rooted and established in love to the point that now we have power together with all the saints. And what will be the result? He says three things. It's interesting to me that in both of these prayers, he has two petitions, and the first one has one result and a single result, and the second one has three, both times. In chapter 1 and chapter 3, Paul seems to be sort of an orderly writer. He says if this is true, if you're rooted and established in love, then he says that will result in you being able to know, to grasp, to understand how high and... Excuse me, let me read it because it doesn't start out high. How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. He uses four words to describe three dimensions. Or maybe he's telling us this love is 4 dimensions. One or the other. Because, you see, high and deep is the same. You just start from the middle. See, you start from the middle and go up, that's high. You start from the middle and go down, that's deep. So he gave me width and length and then two ways of describing height. High and deep. Maybe he's just excited, like I'd get sometimes in my don't say exactly what I really mean or maybe I add one too many words to something or hit the microphone like I did just then in excitement and maybe he just got excited. I understand the Spirit inspired him but it let him be Paul too, didn't it? And maybe he just got excited and he threw out those four words to describe three dimensions. That'd be beautiful. That's not my judgment. My judgment is he's telling you there's something about love that length, height, and width we'll never discuss. That we've gone beyond the three-dimensional world. We've gone beyond what we can see and hear and smell and taste and touch and even feel. And we've gone to that, to that that's so deep that it's impossible to explain. Doesn't he sort of say that in that next phrase? He says, number one, you'll have a powerful understanding. He says, number two, you'll have a powerful knowledge. You will know this love that passes knowledge. How can you know what you can't know? I mean, this love passes knowing, and yet he says, I can know it completely. He doesn't even use the word that means I can be in the process of learning this love that passes knowledge. He says, I can know fully all the evidence in, reach a logical, total, unalterable conclusion about this love. No new evidence will ever be presented that will maybe reflect on the evidence I've got and think that God doesn't love me. God's already given me all the evidence and I can know it as surely as I can know that two parts hid- hydrogen and one part oxygen makes water every time. As surely as I can know that equal ingredients of sodium and, and, uh, and chloride make salt. I mean, I can know that, can't I? All the evidence is in. Drop something, it's going to hit the ground. I can know that. Why? Because there is a law called or there's a principle called the law of gravity. That evidence is in. The evidence is in. You can know how deep God loves you, but you'll never know it. That's, God's not double talking. In the first case, He's talking about real knowledge. In the second case, He's talking about knowledge falsely so called. I mean, you can go to school, you can go to college, you can go to university, you can go to seminary, you can come to Sunset School of Preaching, you can read the Bible 24 hours a day for 144,000 years. And if it goes no deeper than your head and no broader than your teeth, then you'll never know the love of God. But you may be a new Christian and you know Acts 2.38, Mark 16, 15 and 16 and you can know the love of God. I mean, you can know fully the love of God. Now, you might appreciate what you know more later, but you'll never know more deeply God's love than you knew it at the moment that you surrendered to him in the act of being born again. Boy, you knew he loved you, right? And you never know it more deeply than that. You know all there is to know about the love of God right then. You may know some details of how he manifests love later on, but that will simply confirm the love you already have. I really don't believe that Jennifer, when she's 30 will know love for her mother who she's looking at right now any more than she does at this very moment. She has a child's love. Later on she'll have an older person's love. But she'll know it no more than she does today. I think that's good news if you're new in Christ or starting all over in Christ or want to be new in Christ or want to start all over in Christ. I think it's good to know that when you do that, you will not be a shallow lover. Nobody can say your love is immature. If you have died with Christ and you've been born again, your love is mature. You may mature in your understanding of God, but only confirm the fact that he loves you. If you disagree with that, that's all right. That's what I get out of that text. He says you will understand you will know. And then he says you'll be filled. He says I want you that you may be filled with the, to the measure of all the fullness of God. You will understand powerfully. You will know powerfully. You will be filled powerfully. You'll be filled completely. He says I am praying that you will be filled to the full measure to the measure of all the fullness of God. If God is my fullness, I'm full. If it's true, and it is, this ad if is subjective. Since it's true, that for you to live is Christ, for you to live is Christ and to die is gain. Since that's true. And since it's true that Christ, who is our life, One day we'll be manifested, and then we'll be manifested with Him in glory. Since that's true. Since to me to live is Christ, and you to live is Christ, and Christ is our life, then we are full. We're filled with all the full measure of Christ. Jesus said, If I'll just be poor in spirit, and mourn, and be meek, and hungry and thirsty for righteousness. I'll be filled you see if I am hungry if I am driven to be the righteous child of God then I'm filled Paul's plan or God's plan God's purpose, Paul's prayer finally Paul's praise now to him what should I say since this is true since God has made me a fellow heir and a fellow member and a fellow sharer with you Since I am a servant and a teacher and a preacher, since God does intend that His Word, even in heaven, be made known even to principalities and powers in heavenly places through my activity, since I can approach God with freedom and confidence, since Christ dwells in my heart, since I grasp God's love, since I know even the unknowable characteristics of God's love, since I am filled with all the fullness of God, what ought to be my response? Praise the Lord! That's ought to be my response. Hallelujah. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Those are songs that we've written out of these verses. He says, now to him. That's God. Now to him that is able to do, exceeding, abundantly, above, All that we ask or think. Whew. I know he wrote by inspiration. But in my mind's eye, one night, a number of years ago, when I was meditating on that text, I imagined, what if Paul had just been trying to write that on his own? I know he's inspired. But what if he's just trying to write it on his own? I can imagine saying, well, let's see here. I need to write Richard a letter. And I need to tell him about the power that God has. What am I going to say? I, I, I. Now, Richard, remember, God is able. If he'd have mailed me that letter, he'd been good, right? But he said, God's able to do. No, that won't do. It. He scratched through it. And he says, God is able to do all. God is able to do above all. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all. God's able to do exceeding abundantly above all. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask. Maybe that's why we need to be converted and become as little children because what do they specialize in? They specialize in asking, don't they? And James says we have not because we ask not. I read that one day and I said, Lord, thank you for that. One reason I'm not going to have it is because I didn't ask. And so I started asking. There may be reasons I don't get what I want and what I ask for, but it won't be because I don't ask. Because God is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything I ask. But Paul draws through that too. And he says, Now unto him who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think, dream. That's another thing about children, right? They can dream. I mean, they come in, they got these magnificent things they're going to do, and we start pouring cold water on it. Dummy, you can't do that. God forgive us for such stupidity because the dream always precedes the deed. Now, in him who's able to exceed him, but above all we ask or think, and he just throws a pen down the paper and he says, It's no use, words are bankrupt. When it comes to discussing the power of God. Do you believe that? I don't believe he did that. But do you believe what he wrote? It helped me understand what he wrote. I hope it helped you and didn't abuse your conscience. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Because if we really believe that. We got to believe the next phrase too. It's easy to put a period there and walk away. I've always known that about God. God's real powerful. There's no period. He said, God does all of that and is able to do all that according to the power that is at work in us. That's the best news. The good news is God's powerful. The better news, that power's in me. The best news is that power works in me. I mean, it's just not resident there. It's not sleeping there. It's not dormant there. That power works in me. That means I can do exceeding abundantly above anything I ask or think. Because that power is working in me. Boy, that rebukes me, Gerald. Because that means I've not been faithful to Jesus. Because if I was faithful to Jesus, then you and I would be amazed at what I was doing. And I'd be amazed at what you were doing what God was accomplishing in our life, we'd stand back and say, I cannot explain that and leave God out. There's no way I can. No way I want to do it. I don't want to leave God out. I want God involved in my life. I don't want Him just looking down and saying, good son, hustle, hustle, hustle. I don't want Him being a cheerleader. I want Him being the dynamo in my life, the dynamic of my life. And that's what that text says He is. So what's my response to that. Man, glory to God. Unto him be glory in the church, not by it. He is not talking about the church saying, glory to God. He's talking about the church being the glory of God. He says glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus unto all generations forever and ever. What can you say to that? Amen. Amen. Sermon's over. If you need Jesus in any way tonight, you can have him that way. Talk to somebody next to you when this meeting's over. Tell them you want to know more about what was said. See me, call me. See the elders, call the elders. Let's talk, all right? If you need to respond publicly, do it while we stand inside.